Welcome to an all new episode of the McFuture podcast, challenging the beliefs that run the world. I'm Steve Factor, and I took a long time away. I just needed a break from the podcast, but we are back. And I wish it was a more cheerful topic, but I think you'll enjoy this episode. I put a lot of thought into some of the unusual narratives that aren't really being covered. The terrorist attack of Hamas on Israel. Well over a thousand people have been killed in the most horrific ways imaginable. This is the most disgusting version of humanity. Through all of this barbarism, you would think this is a slam dunk in terms of moral clarity. You're like, hey, I did the black square on Instagram. I put up the Ukrainian flag on my uh, social media accounts. And this rainbow with the lines and the squiggly, whatever the fuck it is, that makes sense to me. However, the beheaded babies, I'm so confused. I normally don't love rape, but I also don't like Jews. So I'm a little conflicted. Beheadings, I don't know. It's kind of kind of confusing. I, I listen, I, I'm not one of these people who feels like they have to demonstrate and proclaim all of their stances and politics in their social media profiles. But there are people who are that way and they're dead silent. I really started thinking about this when someone very close to me, and I'm not going to out this person, started wondering, I'm from this area. I have family who live there. Why aren't my close friends getting in touch with me and asking, how's your family? How is everything? They're watching the same things I'm watching, the murders of civilians, the beheadings, the, the kidnappings, the rapes. It's all on video. It's all out there. It's, it's all over Twitter. I started to think of some reasons. So I came up with six. What causes us not to care to the level that we should as human beings? So the first is, I was like, they're just ignorant. They don't follow the news. And I don't blame them to some extent. People are busy. They have their own lives. They have their own worries and concerns. Even educated people have chosen their sources. They think that watching MSNBC or Fox News or reading the New York Times, that's information. No, those are narratives that are fed to you. And people will adopt them as their own regurgitate them. And that just becomes your opinion because it's easy. And, and that's why narratives work. And that's why corporate media is fighting so hard to make sure that they keep working by shutting down independent media and trying to influence social media companies to do that for them. Now, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, has been criticized by people on the right. It's sometimes criticized maybe by people on the left. But here is the head of the uh, ADL dressing down MSNBC and its coverage and its narratives on their very own show. I, I think it's an interesting moment. So while I am sad and trying to cope, honest, I am angry. I am angry with the world that allowed the dehumanization of Israelis and sanitized the terrorism of Hamas. I must say, I love this show. And I love this network, but I've got to ask who is writing the scripts 
Hamas, the people who did this, they are not fighters, Jonathan. They are not militants. And I'm looking right at the camera. They are terrorists. It is a barbarian who rapes and brutalizes women, who tear, kills children in front of their parents, and then brings them over to Gaza, who literally, we've heard all these reports, and we know these aren't just reports, these were filmed gleefully by the barbarians who committed these grotesque crimes. They filmed, for example, an elderly woman in her home in one of these towns. They burned her alive in her house because she was too infirm to take out. And, you know, parading women, bleeding from the crotch because they were raped throughout Gaza while people hoot and holler and cheer. So look, you know, when we say, oh, this was an escalation, it was bound to happen, I am sorry. This was a massacre that was pre-planned. This was not destined to happen. It is not normal to shoot teenagers in the back, hundreds of them. So I just think like, guys, get the story right. And all these pictures of like, you know, missiles or the rubble in Gaza, please talk to the Israeli mothers and fathers who lost their children. Talk to the, the grandchildren whose grandparents were seized as hostages. And please stop calling this a retaliation. This is a defensive measure against an organization that is committed to one thing, killing Jews, not a peaceful resolution of a conflict, but murdering Jews. And if you're wondering if I'm exaggerating, please, I beg of you, everyone watching and everyone at this network, just watch the footage. Now, I don't automatically frown on ignorance. Sometimes it's the only way to get through the day. Sometimes willful ignorance is the only way forward. But a lot of the people I see are both ignorant and not moving forward. On some level, the key to happiness is living many, many layers below the horrors and exploitation of the world and shutting off parts of yourself and parts of the internet that connect you to those horrors. But sometimes a little bit more information is important so we can make humane decisions and actually reach out to people. So ignorance is definitely an issue. Number two is very pragmatic. Whatever doesn't affect you directly, you don't care about. Every once in a while I hear Europeans say, well, Europeans know all these languages, they're so worldly, because they have to know those languages to function. You drive 40, 50 miles, you can go through two countries or three countries. It's a survival skill. Uh, and you will see that even in the U.S., people who live on the southern border and have to deal with a lot of, a lot of Mexican workers or, or other Mexican residents will learn Spanish. And, and so it's just how human beings function. You also see it in comedy clubs where a person could be laughing at the darkest, most horrible jokes, but then you get to their issue and maybe uh, objectively it's not any more offensive or probably less offensive than some other issue. But if they had someone who died of cancer or, or is sick with HIV or AIDS or whatever, 
that's going to be their hot button. You press it, you will hear from them or they'll walk out or they'll heckle the comedian. Everyone has their issues and also everyone has their blind spots. And a lot of them are linked to survival. So I get that too. So again, I'm not trying to excuse people for not caring, but I'm, I'm genuinely trying to understand why they don't. Number three is we have crafted a world of our choosing. We all live in algorithmic bubbles. Depending what you click on, on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, the algorithm will create that world for you. It could be one minute cooking videos. It could be hot jiggly chicks on Instagram. It could be, I don't know, cute dog videos. Whatever it is, that becomes your world. And it's very hard for anything else to permeate into that world. You end up with this extreme version of learning the things that you want to know, but not the things that you need to know. So to some extent, you become a puppet of your own desires and the algorithms don't help. So whenever something like this happens, there's a setting, for example, on Instagram for sensitive material. It is buried deep inside the settings of the app, but you can find it and you can say, uh, show me less sensitive material, standard or more sensitive material. But even the more setting is an algorithm. It's still Facebook deciding what you will or won't see. When I say Facebook, Meta, which controls Instagram. The fourth thing is I think we've burned out our sensors. What I mean by that is we've exceeded our capacity to care. There has never been a time in history where we've been bombarded by more information and more tragedies, more horrors, more natural disasters, more things to be afraid of than we have today. And a lot of things that don't even affect us. You will know about tsunamis in Thailand. You will know about uh, earthquakes in Turkey was the most recent one. You will find out all these things that you can't do anything about or anything with, but you will watch those tragedies online. You will watch thousands of murders by the time you're age, I don't know, 18 on television, of whether it's a sci-fi show or, or some sort of procedural drama. So our sensors are fried. Our sensors are fried. We can't process anymore. I am nostalgic for this era where we could not know, like every once in a while things would affect us and would affect the nation. You would see the president get on TV and explain it to you. And Yes, we were less informed, but on some level, we were also more free mentally to not worry about these things. So this has affected our humanity because something tragic was so rare. But if tragedy is daily, whether it's in real life, fictional life, or far, far away, you're done. You're, you can't process anymore. And just the sheer number of people we're connected to, now we're exposed to all of their tragedies. Go on Facebook, on any given day, somebody's uh, parent died or some someone's dog passed away. And those are people sometimes you haven't seen for a decade. Anyway, a fifth reason is maybe they're just rooting for the other side and they don't wanna reach out. Maybe they do hate Jews. So that is a distinct possibility. 
every tiny minority, especially one that succeeds. It's very easy to point to them, hey, look at these guys, they've got all your stuff, now go get mad at them. And usually the people saying that are the people who have all the stuff, like the real stuff. And certainly Arab states are like that. Arab states do horrific things. They're murdering people, they're waging wars, they're waging genocides in Yemen, and yet the Jews are the problem. Also, historically, Jews don't fight back. Uh, this has been a, a very recent occurrence, what's happening in Israel. That, this is not the norm. There's been a lot of Jews beaten up in school. I was one of them. And Jews don't recruit. The group never gets bigger. So there's no missionaries. There's no one spreading the word of how awesome these crackers are. Hey, this is blood of Christ. I'm not schooled in all the uh, traditions. But... It's always been and it's always going to be this tiny little minority, and it's very easy to propagandize against. And, of course, the most obvious wedge issue is land and uh, uh, Palestine versus Israel. And certainly what's happening there is not fair, and I really don't like the way the, the uh, Palestinian people are treated either by Israel or their own leaders. And I'll get into that in a minute. And the sixth possibility is maybe they're just not your friends. I guess the criteria for friendship is for each of us to decide. Everyone sets their thresholds differently. Also, different friends have different understandings of each other's thresholds, right? So you might think, X is required, but the other person craves Y. I noticed this with neighbors too. I have neighbors who have no clue of what's going on there. Even when you tell them, hey, you know, worried about what's going on in Israel, no follow-up question, no interest. And on some level, I despised the idea that they had no clue and didn't even have the wherewithal to ask a follow-up question. But on the other hand, I was wildly jealous of this person. The ability to maintain this level of, of obliviousness will probably lead to a healthier life, probably a longer life. And the problem is these people vote and they're clearly not informed. And I don't know that there's anything the informed people can do to undo whatever they're voting in. I don't know on what basis uh, some of these people even vote on. I, I have no idea. Again, they're not bad people, but it's just such a strange thing to me. And maybe I'm just wired differently and I don't understand how they can <laughs> go through the world that way, but I guess it works. Uh, another person who was wondering why corporations don't speak out was Donnie Deutsch. So Donnie Deutsch is a, a, now a commentator on, I think, MSNBC, but he's, he's he's been on other channels. He was an advertising guy. If I remember correctly, his dad founded the Deutsch ad agency, and I think he ran his own agency for a while. Anyway, I'll, I'll play this clip. I don't understand the silence that Jonathan just talked about and the president talked about. When I say silence, we have what I call kind of our pillars of our institutions of who we are. We have our corporate America. We have academic America, our academic institutions. We have the entertainment industry, communications and media, and we have our political uh, operatives. And almost without exception, there's been silence. 
Jews being slaughtered by the mission statement of exterminating Jews, yet somehow it's either, well, it's contextualized, or I can't do it, or I'm afraid of the backlash. And to, and to Jonathan's point, the universities seem the opposite. They're, they're condoning the, the hate against Jews. And I don't understand the silence from Hollywood. I don't understand the silence from corporate America. I don't understand the silence from the academics. And I don't understand the silence from so many politicians. The reason corporations, and I'm including Hollywood in all of this, the, the show business is a business. It's right there in the in the subheading. They're amoral. They're amoral. I've done whole episodes on this, so I, I don't want to get into it in detail. But corporations are there to maximize profit, not take moral stances. And that's why corporate leaders never or almost never have the gravitas. Ooh, ancient Greek word, pulled that one out. But they don't have the clout to make moral stances. And I've heard Tim Cook, for example, go out there and talk about climate. Well, that's great, but it doesn't take a genius to look at an iPhone and say, hey, why is your battery glued in? Why can't I upgrade the memory? Why is it that I drop this thing and everything on it cracks instantly? Because you want me to buy another one. You want this one to go bad. How good is that for the climate? So when they go out there and go, oh, our data centers are super clean and we're you know, buying all these, all these carbon credits, you kind of know it's bullshit. And again, I, I don't mean to call him out. I think it's just an example of what corporate is. It is a profit-driven machine. They have to answer to shareholders. So unless we change that, uh, and it's up to society to change that, then that's all you can expect. So Donnie Deutsch, sorry, <laughs> this is the world we're in. And he'd be doing the same thing if he were a Deutsch agent. He might say something, maybe he has a personal connection. There are other reasons to speak out, but the bigger the company, the more that's at stake and the more they think they can lose by alienating a customer or even employees, they're not gonna speak out. To some extent, corporations now are captives of this malignant form of leftism that's taken hold in, in our society. And I'm gonna uh, talk a little bit later about what that means and, and how it's manifesting itself. And what's funny is all of the same people who will never shut up about microaggressions. Oh my God, it's like an aggression, but really, really small. And it hits you so tiny and it just a lot of them, you know? And um, they'll never shut the f up about microaggressions. Beheaded babies is a macroaggression. Why aren't you speaking out? Worse, why are you celebrating academia? And all of these dummies actually came out for the murders. So the uh, Democratic Socialist, uh, is it Association Alliance? Uh, uh, assholes? I think it's assholes. Uh, it's the DSA. So the New York City DSA, they immediately organized a free Palestine rally the next day after these images, after the terrorist attack. Then DSA San Francisco wrote, a better world is possible. We call on all those who share our vision of global working class emancipation to join the fight to end the occupation and decolonize Palestine. I'm gonna get back to that word in a second. From the river to the sea. Now, people also love to talk about 
uh, what are those um, dog whistles? Now, from the river to the sea is a dog whistle a lot of people don't know about. So what that means is it's a, this is from um, uh, the American Jewish Committee on their website. From the river to the sea is a catch-all phrase symbolizing Palestinian control over the entire territory of Israel's borders from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is a common call to arms for pro-Palestinian activists. It calls for the establishment of a state of Palestine from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, erasing the state of Israel and its people. It's also a rallying cry for terrorist groups and their sympathizers from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, to Hamas, which called for Israel's destruction on its uh, original governing charter in 1988. And it doesn't end there. All the good guys came out. BLM Chicago posted a big poster, I Stand With Palestine. I guess there's a, an innocuous interpretation of that. If it didn't happen minutes after a murderous terrorist event, but they made no doubt about it because the image was of a guy parachuting in uh, like a military soldier, like a, a shadow of a military soldier parachuting in to Israel to free Palestine. And guess what they did? Hamas came over with uh, parachutes to shoot up and murder civilians. And so that is the image that BLM Chicago chose. BLM, do all lives matter, BLM? Or do some lives matter? And again, we need to distinguish between the idea of Black Lives Matter, because of course Black Lives Matter, and the mutant thieves that have ripped off millions, I think it might be in the billions of dollars that have been donated uh, to buy houses, to buy God knows what. I know for a fact, none of it went back into the communities to help anybody. That is for sure. Anyway, so that's BLM endorsing murder. And even Jewish intellectuals, this guy Norman Fink... Fink <laughs> Norman Finkelstein keeps coming up and he's like, the Palestinians... They had no other options. I, I, I don't know if I'm going to include a clip of him talking. I, I can only stomach it for so long. Anyway, you get the idea. And the universities were worse than anybody. Harvard, I call it the Harvard School of Terrorism, declared basically that the raped, kidnapped, tortured, and murdered, they're the real terrorists. Not the terrorists who did it, but the, the people who, you know, had it done to. Um, they had this declaration that they posted, and this is a quote, we, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. And then it goes on for the last two decades, millions of Palestinians have been forced uh, to live in an open air prison, and the apartheid regime is the only one to blame. This was signed by 31 organizations. I think maybe the total eventually was 34. This is the norm in academia. Columbia University, uh, they had a, their student group 
celebrated Hamas's historic massacre of Israeli civilians, characterizing it as a long overdue counteroffensive against Israel's purported apartheid regime. This thing just started blowing up. So investor Bill Ackman, who uh, I think is Jewish, he said, release a list of the members of each of these organizations that issued support for Hamas and their heinous act. And, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about that. I do think that if you are celebrating terrorism, you are at the very least terrorist adjacent. And should that be an FBI list or a public list? I don't know about a public list. I don't know that people should be going out and, and, and taking out vigilante actions on anybody. But I think that if those are your values and let's say you were allowed into the country, I think we should consider deporting you because those values uh, of supporting terrorism are inconsistent with the values of this nation. I hope, but I'm not even sure anymore. They should at the very least be on an FBI watch list. And all of these people who were part of these organizations started backpedaling. Oh, we didn't know. We didn't know. What? Larry Summers, in nearly 50 years, this is a quote from him. Maybe the intonation isn't exact, but I'm going to do it my way. In nearly 50 years at Harvard affiliation, I have never been as disillusioned and alienated as I am today. You liar. All of this has been happening under their noses. They know exactly who their student body is and what they're teaching them and what the professors are and what they're teaching them. They know exactly for him to act ignorance is so disgusting. It's gross. He wants the money. He wants the notoriety. He wants the status and prestige of being a, a head of Harvard and then associated with Harvard. But what he doesn't want is accountability for what Harvard has become, which is a den of, of mind fuckery. And this is who they're harboring, you know, the microaggressions people. So uh, this woman, this is in her Twitter bio. Yale professor, radical Muslim, author of Islam is a Foreign Country, and writes for the New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, QZ, and NPR. This is what she wrote. Settlers are not civilians. This is not hard. So in other words, hey, if you settled in this land, off with your head. That's okay. She also posted... My heart is in my throat. Prayers for Palestinians. Israeli is a murderous, genocidal settler state, and Palestinians have every right to resist through armed struggle solidarity. She posted this not years ago and not months after and not, or, or <laughs> the fact that she posted it at all. She posted on October 7th, 2023, the day of the massacres. This woman is not a secret to Yale. She's employed by the university. These are her views. She is a terrorist sympathizer. And there are plenty of them at Harvard. 31 organizations to be exact. If Larry Summers is surprised by that, he needs to be fired by the university. I think he still works for it. Uh, he needs to be fired because... 
if he's confused by what's growing underneath his feet, then he's unaware and they need to hire somebody else. And uh, NYU, same thing. Uh, this woman, Raina Workman, uh, she's the head of the NYU Law Student Bar Association. She wrote, hi, y'all. This week, I want to express first and foremost my unwavering and absolute solidarity with Palestinians in their resistance against oppression toward liberation and self-determination. Israel bears full responsibility for this tremendous loss of life. These people are among us. They are teachers and students and heads of student bodies and future politicians and future journalists and future influencers and future corporate executives. I don't, I don't know if any of these douchebags are going to make it into corporate, but, but these people are among us. And these are factories farming and creating them and growing them and, and, and filling their minds with these ideas. This is another example. An instructor at Stanford University has been suspended for what the president and provost called identity-based targeting of students in connection with the Israel-Gaza war. Rabbi Dove Greenberg, director of Chabad Stanford Jewish Center, said he was told by three students who were in the room that the instructor asked Jewish and Israeli students to identify themselves during a session for a required undergraduate course called Civil, Liberal, and Global Education. The teacher told Jewish students to take their belongings, stand in a corner, and said, quote, this is what Israel does to Palestinians, Greenberg said, citing the student accounts. Then the instructor asked, quote, how many people died in the Holocaust? When a student answered, quote, six million, the lecturer said, quote, colonizers killed more than six million. Israel is a colonizer. Colleges, especially these elite schools, have been fanning this malignant form of leftism. It is brutality cloaked as equity. This is an ideological monoculture. 95% of professors are either far left or have the sense to be quiet and let those people rule the roost. And they are fanning not only anti-Americanism and anti-capitalism and now terrorism, but all of it is disguised as intellectualism. It's disguised as caring. It's disguised as diversity, equity, inclusion. When you don't need to scratch very far below the surface, these are deep authoritarians. They don't want to do it. They don't want to slice your head off, but they will cheer on and they will rationalize and they will write a 500 page uh, book about why it's okay that that guy did it. They are just a smokescreen for horrible, horrible ideas. They are perpetuators of those ideas. That's not to say there aren't horrific right-wing movements, but right-wing movements are usually dumb, overtly aggressive, hateful, 
and violent, and they usually skew very young and very male. Leftist movements are different. They're passive aggressive. They cloak their brutality in egalitarianism. It's like, hey, we're all gonna be equal. So what is egalitarianism as they define it? It's not lifting up the people who are struggling. These people have no clue how to do that. They've never built anything in their life. They've never built a business. They've never innovated or invented anything. They've never created art. They've never created anything great or, or anything that employs people. They have no clue how to do that. So all the equity philosophy can do is decapitate the people who stand out. You rise up high enough, they want to cut your head off and give the blood to the people who don't have any. That's their idea of egalitarianism. It is not bring, lifting people up to make them the best that they can be. They have no desire, they have no interest to do that. And so what has taken hold in universities? I'm going to talk about three, three concepts. The first is this idea of decolonization. And you hear the elites mention this nonstop. There was a headline in the FP, which is Barry Weiss's uh, publication. She wrote, when people tell you who they are, believe them. This is what decolonization really looks like. Look carefully at who's cheering it on. And I agree 100%. And you can see in these videos, this is at the Sydney Opera House. People are cheering, gas the Jews and death to the Jews. And the very same scene repeated itself in Berlin, London, Toronto, New York. Put them on a list and send them away. Because the longer they stay, the more they represent all of our values. And if progressive now means siding with baby beheaders, then they need to be treated like terrorist cells because that's what they are. They're walking among us and they sympathize. And really that's the dirty secret of this decolonization idea. That ultimately it's the murder of anyone that they deem to be a colonist. Doesn't matter how many generations removed, doesn't matter if you did it yourself, doesn't matter what the historical context, but maybe if you're white, that's a good start. That's a good start. Hey, you know, you're probably a colonist. Your granddaddy, great, 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 great granddaddy was a colonist. And therefore, it's okay if we murder you. That is the decolonization concept in a nutshell. It's just so funny that these dumbasses, and I'm not talking about the, the ones who really hate, but these Johnny Come Lately types, the DSA types, they basically turned terrorists into their imaginary friends. 
What do they think is going to happen if they showed up? Their heads would be on stakes in the Gaza Strip. There's a, a porn star, Mia Khalifa, who is, I don't know if she's Palestinian, but she's, I think she's Arab, definitely Muslim. But uh, she, in a series of social media posts, uh, Khalifa urged freedom fighters, that's a quote, from the militant Palestinian group to film their violent actions for her enjoyment. So she was fired by Playboy, which, by the way, how the hell does Playboy still even exist? And I am hereby making an offer. Mia, I would love to pay your way, a uh, one-way ticket to the Gaza Strip. I will fly you in. I don't want anything bad to happen. I just want you to film your reception in whatever clothes you normally wear. Bring a bring a, a cell phone, but I would recommend you stream while you do this, just in case. And let's see what happens. Let's see how much they tolerate porn stars. I don't know. Maybe maybe they're very tolerant, and I just don't know it. Maybe I'm the dumb one, Mia. My offer stands. Please take me up on it. I will ensure your security to get into Gaza, maybe not through Gaza, but into Gaza, and uh, I will pay for the flight. So come on down. Now, I don't mean that come, the other come. And there's another group called Queers for Palestine. I mean, this is, this is a, I don't know if they're writing comedy. I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is a joke. I, this could be, they could be pranking us. I really, there's, there, I think there's a group called Queers for Palestine. Now, Tel Aviv actually has gay pride parades. They have a, a, a huge gay community, extremely tolerant, extremely westernized. Everyone's having a party. It's great when things are good. How many pride parades do you think happen in Gaza or West Bank or any Arab country? In most of them, gays are thrown off of buildings. And sometimes not one even high enough where it doesn't hurt. One where you might still land and it hurts and you remember it, and then you die. That's what we're dealing with. Dummies. There are all of these weak allies, all of these people. I did a whole episode on allies. Look it up. It's good. They sign up for all these fashionable causes, but you have to separate them from the people with the deep convictions, with the hate in their hearts, people who have a vested interest in, this, uh, in these ideas. Uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, who we elected here has those kinds of convictions. But Tiffany, the one with the really cute sign at the rally, she's not going to fight the IDF. She's got a nail appointment at three. And the second concept I want to talk about that's happening with academia is intersectionality, where everything is based on a hierarchy of historical suffering. And again, not a hierarchy you get to choose or that someone investigates. It's literally as dumb as using your skin color or sexual orientation, never your individual struggle. Because this concept, intersectionality, doesn't care about individualism. It is a collectivist concept where individuals don't matter. It's just a race and gender-based rebranding of communism. 
which is an economic class-based system. And this is a very important thing to know about intersectionality. And there's there's been a lot of writing about this, podcasts, whatever. I'm sure that people have done deep dives. I'm just going to touch on it here. But this is the important part of it. And this is the part that almost never gets discussed. Intersectionality serves the incumbency. It serves the people in power, the people with money, the people in control. The reason it does that, the way it does that, is it stokes hatred and animosity between groups, races, genders, religions, and it distracts from the sometimes very legitimate class issues that that we have, which are considerably bigger. The class commonality between a, a, a middle-class black, Muslim, Jewish, uh, immigrant em- employee at a factory, their commonality and what they want in life and what they want for their kids, they have way more in common than they do based on their races and their and their faiths. But no one wants you to know that. And thanks to intersectionality, they won't because those people are going to be at each other's throat over things that don't matter. And ultimately, people won't rise up because they're not even able to think clearly enough about the lack of health care. They're not able to think clearly about unions, which I'm going to do in in the next episode. They're not able to think clearly about anything, but the animosity stoked by what is being taught in school and propagated by media. And these are all Larry Summers buddies and donors and financiers. So the idea that he as head of Harvard doesn't know this is such a scam. It's such a joke. He serves them in every possible way. The third concept of what's going on in universities is demoralization. And Yuri Bezmenov, who immigrated to the, uh, I think it was either U.S. or Canada, uh, he was a KGB propagandist. And he has this classic video, I think from 1984, in an interview. He talks about how the, the plan of the communists is to demoralize Americans. And the way to do that is through the university system. Maybe I'll play a a small clip. Well, you spoke several times before about ideological subversion. That is a phrase that uh, I'm afraid some Americans don't fully understand. When uh, the Soviets use the phrase ideological subversion, what do they mean by it? To change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in in four basic stages. Uh, The first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology, 
is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The result, the result you can see, most of the people who graduated in the 60s, dropouts or half-baked intellectuals, are now occupying the positions of power in the government, civil service, business, mass media, educational system. You are stuck with them. You cannot get rid of them. They are contaminated. They are programmed to think and react to certain stimuli in a certain pattern. You cannot change their mind, even if you, if you expose them to authentic information, even if you prove that white is white and black is, uh, is black, you still cannot change the basic perception and the logic of behavior. In other words, these people, uh, uh, the process of demoralization is complete and irreversible. To get rid of society of these people, you, have, you need another 20 or, or, or 15 years to educate a new generation of patriotically minded and, and, and uh, common, common sense people who would be acting in favor and in the interests of, of the uh, of, uh, United States society. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already uh, for the last 25 years. Actually, it's overfulfilled because uh, demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. So basically America is stuck with, with demoralization and unless, even if, if you start right now, here, this minute, you start educating new generation of Americans, it will still take you 15 to 20 years to turn the tide of, uh, of ideological perception of reality uh, back to normal, no, normalcy and, and uh, patriotism. When people are cheering on terrorists, they've been demoralized. And schools are doing just that. I don't know how much of it is this plan that the communists put in place versus self-selection. There are some people who are soft-brained collectivists who gravitate to academia because it's not that competitive. They can write their books. They they don't have to be held accountable for their ideas because they can't be fired. And none of these ideas are manifested in, in the real world. They're not building something. They're not inventing something. So essentially, these ideas are are fungible. You know, they're non-fungible. No, they're fungible. Non-fungible is NFTs. Go out and get one. But these, these ideas are just garbage. They toss into the air and they never have to prove them. Never. This attracts a certain kind of person. It's a, it's a structural recruiting problem. These are uncompetitive, meek, soft-brained people. And they're highly susceptible to ideologies that manipulate and sometimes weaponize their empathy. 
sometimes to the point of monstrosity, as in this case. Essentially, they're saying, you will be nice, but we will make you. Not personally, because, you know, we have to keep our hands clean and we we got to type on our little typewriters for, <laughs> they're, they're still using typewriters uh, for this example. Uh, we need, we need, we can't have blood get into the typewriter. But Hamas, they will do our bidding and then we'll just celebrate. We'll write a little think piece about it or we'll teach our class about it. And media is complicit in all of this. They are the communication and PR arm of these ideologies brewing on campuses. All of these so-called do-gooders are entering media or politics and they're spreading this message. When you're going into media or politics, which are very low paid, but get tons of scrutiny, especially now, that's a person seeking either power or influence, not money. Maybe money is a secondary thing. That to me is the scariest kind of person on earth because that is a person who wants might and control over others. And I guess you can make an argument that making videos like this, I'm trying to influence something. I, I, I'm not naive enough to think that I can change someone's mind with a, a video or a podcast or whatever. But what I want to do is go a little bit deeper for people who have an open mind and who are thinking about these issues. But that is not what media is. They are dishonest brokers. A perfect example is the MSNBC guy, Mehdi Hassan. He posted immediately after the, the murderous uh, terrorism, he wrote, what the past 48 hours or so has revealed is that there are a lot of people who mourn for dead Israeli civilians, but not dead Palestinian ones. And a lot of people who mourn for dead Palestinian civilians, but not dead Israeli ones. What has happened to our collective humanity? This guy is kind of intellectually dishonest because first of all, look, my allegiance is to the United States of America. My admiration is for Israel and my sympathies are with every person who suffers, including Palestinians, and not just now, but in general, the innocent ones, not Hamas. So I have deep sympathies for everyone who suffers, but we have to be honest about some things. Retaliation to terrorism is not the same as the terrorism first and foremost, and Mehdi Hassan is smart enough to know that. It's sort of like the correction to a news story or to a headline doesn't get the same attention as the original story. That's just a combination of human nature and common sense, where if you're responding to the murder and kidnapping and rape of your civilians, you're going to be cut a little bit of slack. That's just the reality. Number two, you will never see Jews, particularly ones in Israel, cheering on the murder of innocents. Yes, maybe in, in the heat of passion, someone's uh, family member got murdered or something. But in general, that's not a thing Jews do. And I wish I could say the same for the other side. And also, corporate media and social media are not the yardsticks to judge morality. They're 
slaves to agendas and algorithms. And Mehdi Hassan should know that better than anybody. He's a dishonest broker. And I, I wanted to end this segment with um, three tweets written by Jonathan Rosenthal that relate to the subject. Quote, to these people, many of whom are decent and well-meaning, if your first words in response to this unspeakable horror were not an unequivocal condemnation of it, then you have no right to criticize Israel's response. By your logic, Israel's retaliation is just as inevitable. By celebrating or even excusing the crimes of Hamas, you are telling Israelis and Jews everywhere who still live with the trauma of the Holocaust that the world does not value their lives, that they will never be safe living alongside a free Palestine. I do not accept any suggestion that there is any moral equivalence between what Israel must do now and what Hamas chose to do on 710. One abides as best it can with international law and tries to minimize harm. The other revels in genocide, proudly broadcasting it live. And that's really the underlying morality here. Hamas's mission statement is not to free Palestine or to recover land. It is to kill Jews. It is to wipe them off the planet. Here's Golda Meir, the fourth uh, prime minister of Israel, explaining it. Our quarrel with the Arabs is not a quarrel for a piece of land. It's not for territory. It's not for anything concrete. They just refuse to believe that we have the right to exist at all. And in case you want to know what's in Hamas's charter, here's Casey Neistat, a YouTuber, and my attempt to get his attention. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna play him explaining what exactly Hamas's charter says. Hamas has a singular mission, and they're not secretive about it. Um, you can read Hamas's charter, it's online. It's not about land. It's not about helping the people of Palestine live prosperous or happy lives. It is about killing Jews. These are not freedom fighters. They're racist murderers. The day of judgment will not come about until fight Jews and kill them. Then the Jews will hide behind rocks and trees and the rocks and trees will cry out. There's a Jew hiding behind me, come and kill him. That is a, that is a poorly translated, but direct quote from the Hamas charter. And someone posted about the horrors of what's happening in retaliation in, in uh, Palestine, of shutting off the electricity and, and uh, the soldiers going in. And they said, look at how tragic what's happening. There's all these kids, all this other stuff. And I agree, it's tragic. And I guess in my semi-trolling way, I responded, tragic, and it is. Why didn't Hamas consider this? I know the answer. We know the answer now. Hamas knew what the response would be, but that's their way. Taking hostages is their way. Stashing missiles inside of schools and mosques is their way. They know it will stoke outrage in the international community. And they're programmed as kids. There's this video 
this little girl, she says, we have to make war to prove that we are stronger than the Jews, says a little Palestinian schoolgirl in a Gaza school. It's heartbreaking. These kids are being taught to hate from, from youth. I don't know how you can create peace when the indoctrination starts so young. And here's a, a really important clip from Sam Harris. He talks about morality and some of the moral equivalency that you see people trying to make. The truth is, is that there is an obvious, undeniable, and hugely consequential moral difference between Israel and her enemies. The Israelis are surrounded by people who have explicitly genocidal intentions towards them. The Charter of Hamas is explicitly genocidal. It looks forward to a time based on Quranic prophecy when the earth itself will cry out for Jewish blood, where the trees and the stones will say, O oh Muslim, there's a Jew behind me, come and kill him. This is a political document. We are talking about a government that was voted into power by a majority of Palestinians. The discourse in the Muslim world about Jews is utterly shocking. Not only is there widespread Holocaust denial, there's Holocaust denial that then asserts, we will do it for real if given the chance. The only thing more obnoxious than denying the Holocaust is to say that it should have happened. It didn't happen, but if we get the chance, we will accomplish it. There are children's shows in the Palestinian territories and elsewhere that teach five-year-olds about the glories of martyrdom and about the necessity of killing Jews. And this gets to the heart of the moral difference between Israel and her enemies. And this is something I discussed in The End of Faith. To see this moral difference, you have to ask what each side would do if they had the power to do it. What would the Jews do to the Palestinians if they could do anything they wanted? Well, we know the answer to that question, because they can do more or less anything they want. The Israeli army could kill everyone in Gaza tomorrow. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when they drop a bomb on a beach and kill four Palestinian children, as happened last week, this is almost certainly an accident. They're not targeting children. They could target as many children as they want. Every time a Palestinian child dies, Israel edges ever closer to becoming an international pariah. So the Israelis take great pains not to kill children and other non-combatants. Now, what do we know of the Palestinians? What would the Palestinians do to the Jews in Israel if the power imbalance were reversed? Well, they have told us what they would do. For some reason, Israel's critics just don't want to believe the worst about a group like Hamas, even when it declares the worst of itself. We've already had a Holocaust and several other genocides in the 20th century. People are capable of committing genocide. When they tell us they intend to commit genocide, we should listen. There is every reason to believe that the Palestinians would kill all the Jews in Israel if they could. Would every Palestinian support genocide? Of course not. But vast numbers of them and of Muslims throughout the world would. Needless to say, Palestinians in general, and not just Hamas, have a history of targeting innocent non-combatants in the most shocking ways possible. They've blown themselves up on buses and in restaurants. They've massacred teenagers. They've murdered Olympic athletes. They now shoot rockets indiscriminately into civilian areas. And again, the charter of their government in Gaza explicitly tells us that they want to annihilate the Jews, not just in Israel, but everywhere. It's literally like living with Jeffrey Dahmer as your roommate. Sure, he's got his own room, but what's in it? And can you cover up the screams and still have sex with your girlfriend in your room? 
Probably not. And then she goes out, she wants a Pepsi, she opens the fridge, a bunch of heads in there. How do you think that's gonna go? That's not gonna go great. This, you haven't chosen a great roommate. If you have a roommate that beheads people, it's very hard to live with, very hard. Uh, here's another clip of Ami Horowitz, who's a Middle East expert, and he talks about how Hamas understands and uses this idea of victimhood. They understand the PR and the marketing to the West better than anybody. I actually spent two weeks undercover with Hamas. I spent, a, I got to know them in a mentality very, very well. They are extremely smart people. And they were telling me that we have to portray ourselves every possible way as victims because the West understands victimhood. They got this before we did. They understood the paradigm shift and dynamic of we can sell ourselves as victims, we will win the propaganda war, and they're 100% right. That's when it began in my, in my humble Mm, that's interesting. Smart. I mean, that is a major, major commodity. And especially in a world where all you have is public opinion, and that's sort of your commodity. Well, then having every single dingbat on every single college campus be in your corner. And by the way, those dingbats are going to yeah. get jobs at CNN. They're going to get jobs as senators. No, they're going to get jobs uh, in Congress. They Those guys are going to leave that college campus and in a few short years be in positions where they're in charge of purse strings that have to do with yeah. you. So smart. This is propaganda. There is a land issue, but the land issue is buried under a mission statement of murdering every Jew. You can't get to the land issue until you solve this first one. And this is something that Jared Kushner, and I know a lot of people have biases against him. You know, this interview with uh, Lex Friedman is the first time I've heard Jared speak in long form. And honestly, I was unbelievably impressed. It's almost like he has a startup founder mindset, but applied it to government. And that's why he was able to sign the Abraham Accords, which brought normalized relations between Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia and some of these other um, Arab countries. And he talked about this negotiation process and particularly about the difficulty of negotiating with Palestine and some of these other Arab states. It's worth a listen. I was working on the political framework between the Israelis and the Palestinians and trying to understand what were the issues. And the issues were, were not very many. It basically was, you had uh, a land dispute, you know, so you had to figure out where do you put borders ultimately. Uh, you had a security uh, a paradigm, which I was much more favorable to Israel's perspective on. Uh, and obviously the events of the past 48 hours have fully justified that, um, that, that, that bias. Um, and then uh, in addition to that, you had to deal with the religious sites, but I felt operationally that wasn't actually as complicated as people made it because you wanted to just leave it open for everybody. Then I went through and I, I felt that the Palestinian leadership was fairly disincentivized to make a deal because there was just this paradigm where for they had billions of dollars coming in from the international community. And I think that they feared that if they made a deal, they would lose their relevancy internationally and the money would stop flowing into the country. So what I tried to do is to say, you know, my, my approach when I would get into a hard problem, say, how do I understand all the different escape hatches? How do I try to eliminate them and then build a golden bridge that becomes really the 
the only but also the most desirable pathway for the uh, decision makers to walk through. So we developed a business plan for uh, Gaza, the West Bank. Uh, we threw in some, some uh, improvements for uh, Jordan and Egypt as well. I was based it off of the Vision 2030 uh, that they did in Saudi Arabia, which I thought was a, a visionary document. Uh, I went back through this process and I studied uh, basically every um, economic project in the post-World War II period. So we looked at what they did in South Korea, why it was successful with some strong industrial planning. We looked at Japan, we looked at Singapore, uh, we looked at Poland, why it was successful. We spent a lot of time on the Ukraine uh, plan for the country and why it wasn't successful. And that was mostly because of governance and corruption, which actually resembles a lot of what's gone wrong uh, with the Palestinians, where there's no property rights, there's no rule of law. And what we did is we built a plan to show, you know, it's not that that hard, right? In the sense that between the West Bank and Gaza, you had 5 million people. And um, and we put together a plan, I think it was about $27 billion. Uh, we got together a conference. I had the head of AT&T. We had Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone came, which was very gracious of them. We had all the leading Arabic businessmen, the leading builders, leading developers. And the general consensus of that, um, of that, of that, uh, of that, conference was that this is very doable. You know, we think that for Gaza in particular, it would cost maybe maybe seven to eight billion dollars to rebuild the entire place. Uh, we felt we could reduce the poverty rate in half. We can create over a million jobs there. Um, the only thing that people said was holding it back wasn't Israel. What was holding it back was governance and people wouldn't have confidence investing there with uh, with the rule that uh, that Hamas was was perpetuating. So uh, I encourage people actually to look at the plan. It was very thoughtful. It was 181 pages. We went project by project. Uh, each project is costed out. Uh, it's a real plan that could be implemented, but you need the right governance. And all of the different Arabic countries are willing to fund it. The international community is willing to fund it because they've just been throwing so much money at the Palestinians for years. That's never been outcomes-based or conditions-based. It's just been, you know, entitlement money. And unfortunately, it hasn't really achieved any outcomes that have been successful. So it, it's a great business plan. It just shows too, rebuilding Gaza, you know, could be easy. But like I said, you know, the problem that's held the Palestinian people back and that's made their lives terrible uh, in Gaza has not been Israel. It's really been Hamas's leadership or lack of leadership and their desire to focus on trying to kill Israelis and start war with Israel over improving the lives of the Palestinian people. Under the current circumstances, if you do want to have peace there, Hamas has to be either eliminated or severely degraded uh, in terms of their milita military capabilities. And of course, the motivation now is Israel was on the cusp of signing additional agreements with Saudi Arabia, completely normalized relations and trade. And this does not serve Hamas. This does not serve the people in power because they get billions of dollars in aid if this struggle continues. If it's solved, there's no need for them. These guys have to go into an office. I think, that, I don't know if I've ever seen this uh, or I just made this up, but I think there was a, a sketch somewhere where after the terrorists have won, they have nothing to do, so they have to go go do office work. So they just go to lunch and they they, they, they carry their weapons, but there's no one to shoot. This is their purpose. And they're not losing their purpose and they're not losing their financing. What amazes me most through all of this is Israel's restraint and humanity. Any other country, and certainly its enemies, if they had these kinds of military advantages, would never put up with these kinds of attacks. 
they would wipe them off the earth. That is the global and historical norm. Right now, there are very few nations on earth that would leave their enemies standing or trying to make them prosper with, with uh, land deals and, and donated uh, food and clothing, whatever. No one would do that. There are very few historical examples. The U.S. was one helping rebuild Germany and Japan, but they were good partners. These were countries that knew they lost and weren't terrorizing and said, hey, we're going to be okay and put your military bases here. They surrendered. And that was an anomaly. In every other historical example, even today, the enemy is wiped out to the extent that the conqueror can do it. Israel is the sweetest, kindest conqueror you're going to find on earth today or throughout history. How much mercy do you think Hamas would show Israel if they had Israel's military advantage? It's not even something that you could conceive of. And Israelis also provided Palestinian civilians specific evacuation instructions so they could avoid the fighting and be safe. And then Hamas was telling them to ignore those instructions and using them as human shields. That's the delta in morality. And Israel's always held to a different standard. If you look at who is sanctioned the most by the UN, it's always Israel. Because all of these horrible regimes that oppress their people, they need a scapegoat. And they found one. I don't know if it's Jewish faith or, or culture, uh, or, or I think maybe just human nature, is people who have experienced deep loss of a relative, a friend, or whatever— they're not bloodthirsty. They're not out to kill everyone. What they start to feel is this deep respect for life and caring for others. They don't seek vengeance. And yet, just across the border, there are people who are taught to look for nothing but vengeance. I'm a big fan of uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Uh, he's, a, I think, a great musician, brilliant lyricist. And he tragically lost one son and then a second son. I think it was drug-related. I don't remember the exact uh, circumstances. But this is a profound, deep loss, too. Almost back-to-back, -back, like within a couple of years of each other. And Nick changed. He continued to perform, continued to write music, but his lyrics changed. He was a guy who used to, he, he had an album called Murder Ballads. He would write these dark songs with the, some of the darkest subject matter ever. And he changed. He only writes about love now. It's kind of annoying, actually. I, I kind of like the old stuff. But um, I, I like the new stuff, too. But that's the thing. Loss changes people, even when it's heartless and cold. And I, and I expect uh, most Israelis do not want to see bloodshed uh, among Palestinians. Maybe a little bit among Hamas, but definitely not innocent Palestinians. I, I'll, I'll get to the military situation in a second. Uh, but what do you do about the sympathizers? They walk among us. And Douglas Murray, who's a brilliant intellectual, I don't know if you follow him on social media. If you don't, you should. 
he wrote a headline called uh, Britain must stand up against those who support Hamas, expel them, strip them of their citizenship, get them out. Some Western European governments could have banned the rallies in support of Hamas on the streets of their big cities instead of virtue signaling their support for Israel. Quote, never tolerate the intolerable, even in democratic societies, should be the adequate approach and response. I have mixed feelings about this. I detest their message, all of these protesters. They're disgusting. But I defend their right to express it and our right to see what imbeciles they are. I like to know who's out there and what they think. It's important. It's important for me personally to make decisions of who I associate with and important for the FBI to see who to follow and put on a list or deport. I don't trust government to make editorial decisions on who's allowed to protest. Uh, but there is a line. If you're cheering on terrorism and celebrating the taking of lives, that is borderline incitement to violence. This is one of those uh, where I'm on the fence. My personal tendency is towards free speech, but I think once it trends towards violence and inciting it, yeah, it should be banned. I spoke about this a little bit in the last episode. If a person doesn't represent the values of your society and is not willing to uphold and fight and defend them, then immigration fails. You can't absorb or assimilate people who don't share your values. It's, if they don't share your, your food or your language or, or, or other things, you can overcome all of that. But if they don't share your values and they will not uphold the values of the society that lets them in, immigration will fail. Unfortunately, we've lost sight of what our values actually are, so we don't even have the moral clarity to expel people who don't uphold them. On some level, I was thinking, well, these people will at some point realize the horrors that they're endorsing or the things that they're doing as horrifically immoral. But they are indoctrinated. And once a person is indoctrinated, they can never back down. Because the minute they do, especially if they've committed something really heinous, they can't live with themselves. So this becomes the fight of their life. This is why ideologies, dogmas, cults, religions are so hard to shake because people will fight to the last breath to defend them. And honestly, the Democratic Party, I don't know what happened. They used to be the party of the people, the working class. Uh, I, I just don't know what happened. Republicans, they're taking advantage of this politically, but they, they don't believe in helping anybody. And, and they're not hiding it well. But the Democrats, this is what they're harboring. They're the ones pushing university education. Every corporation employs people that I think 
over 90% donate to the Democratic Party. All of these NGOs, all of these nonprofits, every university, they're all left-leaning. And all of the terrorist sympathizers, all of these demoralized decolonization and intersectionality advocates, they're all in the Democratic Party. They want your blood, not directly, but they eventually want your head. Some of them don't even know it. Some of them are useful idiots. And I'm talking about these, these leftist types. And I think it's going to be really important for the Democrats, the real ones, to separate themselves from these radicals because they're tainting their party. They're making it impossible for them to govern with moral authority. How can you do it when the people who walk among you, teach at your universities, the places that you're, you're trying to forgive loans to, those places that you're trying, all of you are trying to send your children to, are indoctrinating them into this. You have to extricate them. The, the squad, I almost called them the quad. I don't know what that is. It's like a, a workout regimen. But they got to go. They got to go. So let's talk about colonialism for a second. Let's say this particular fight was about land, which it isn't, but let's say it was. If it was about land, Jews would have sold it at a huge profit and moved to Montana with double the property at a, a tenth of the cost. They would have figured out a way to get uh, Saudi Arabia and everyone else to pay them off, go and live a beautiful, safe life, not spend a penny on military. That's what Jews would have done if this was just about land. This is not about land. This is about holy land, holy to the Jews, holy to the Muslims, which also means this is a fight that will never end. This is a, a, a multi-millennium battle that, honestly, most Americans don't even want to try to comprehend, especially the ones who are making the most noise. They're not even trying. They're not even interested. They, they grafted this retarded uh, intersectionality framework onto a situation they don't even understand. They're like, oh, well, those people are browner. I mean, it's literally that dumb. They're that dumb. Anyway, it's the dumbest people on earth. Depending on when you start your timeline, do you start it in Roman times? Do you start it after? Jews lived in Israel as their home. But you can start the timeline at 1946 where the, the Palestinian settlements were there and it had been a British colony. But regardless of when you start your timeline, let me give you an analogy. Let's say you have a beautiful home that you're paying a mortgage on in Mamaroneck, New York, which is Westchester. Nice town and kind of a strange name, right? Mamaroneck. Well, that belonged to an Indian tribe. In fact, a lot of the towns there are named after uh, Native American uh, people who live there. Well, what if one day a descendant of the tribe that lived there showed up at your house and said, hey, listen, you're living on my historical tribal land and I would like your house. 
the family would be kind of, well, listen, I, I, we feel bad for your struggle, but we can't really give you our house. That doesn't make any sense. Now, imagine that that Native American now slashed the throats of that family and raped the children as they were dying. Is that a land dispute? Is that the way to handle a land dispute? Are they even the right people to be dealing with the reparations for this land dispute? And certainly not in this way. That's just an American version of what's happening there. Now, again, there are many places you can start this timeline. And there are many people involved who have prevented, in fact, in the year 2000, Clinton had Arafat and who was it? It was Netanyahu. It was uh, Rabin, I think, um, negotiated a settlement that would give uh, Palestine its pre-1967 borders. And the reason 1967 is important is when all the Arabs attacked Israel and Israel miraculously survived. In fact, all of the land movement, nearly all of the land movement that has happened in Israel or, or, or all the encroachment into Palestinian territory has been because they were attacked. They, and not just by Palestine, they were attacked by all the surrounding countries at the same time and still somehow survived. They had an offer to roll back all of that history and get the land that they otherwise lost and any other conqueror would have kept just in exchange for peace. That's all. Of course, Arafat didn't sign it. You know why? Because he died with billions of dollars that should have been aid for the Palestinian people. His wife lived in London in, in a multi-million dollar apartment. She was shopping on the high streets all the time. They are ruled by thieves. There's no one to negotiate with. You heard what Jared said. I'm going to read a, a little section. I, I think this is important by um, Ike Saul, and he addresses this land and colonial issue. And I think it's important history. It's uh, some of which I didn't even know. So I think it, it'll be helpful for, for everyone. He wrote, the global community felt it was important to grant the Jewish people a homeland in a more logical or just world. That homeland would have been in Europe as a kind of reparation for what the Nazis and others before them had done to the Jews, or perhaps in the Americas like Alaska or somewhere else. But the Jews wanted Israel. The British had taken to the Zionist movement. The British had conquered the Ottoman Empire, which handed them control of the land. And America and Europe didn't want the Jews. As a result, we got Israel. The Arab states had already rejected a partitioned Israel repeatedly before World War II and rejected it again after the Holocaust and the end of the war. They did not want to give up even a little bit of their land to a bunch of Jewish interlopers who were granted it all of a sudden by British interlopers who had arrived a hundred years prior. Who could blame them? It had been centuries since the Jews lived there in large numbers, and now they wanted to return in waves as secularized Europeans. Many of us would probably react the same way. So just as humans have done forever, they fought. The many existing Arab states turned against the burgeoning new Jewish state. One side won and one side lost. This is the brutal and broken and violent world we live in. 
but it is what created the global world order we have now. Are Israelis and British people, quote, colonizers because of this 20th century history? Sure. But that view flattens thousands of years of history and conflict and the context of World War I and World War II. I don't view Israelis and Brits as colonizers any more than Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans or the Mongols or the Egyptians or the Ottomans who all battled over the same strip of land from as early as 800 years before Jesus's time until now. The Jews who founded Israel just happened to have won the last big battle for it. You can't speak about this issue in a vacuum. You can't pretend that it wasn't just 60 years ago when Israel was surrounded on all sides by Arab states who wanted to wipe them off the face of the planet. Despite the balance of power shifting this century, that threat is still a reality. And you can't talk about that without remembering the only reason the Jews were in Israel in the first place was they'd spent the previous centuries fleeing a bunch of Europeans who also wanted to wipe them off the face of the planet. And then Hitler showed them up. Israel is forever stuffing these people into tinier and tinier boxes with fewer and fewer resources. But if you want to blame Israeli leaders for continuing to expand and settle land that does not belong to them, as I do, then you should also spare some blame for Palestinian leaders for repeatedly not accepting a partitioned Israel during the 20th century that could have led to peace, as I do. Anyway, that was Ike Saul. And now homes in the U.S. are unaffordable. Maybe we should decolonize them. Hey, kids, let's go out there and decolonize. How do you think that's going to go? This is not the way forward. And... The way forward is simple enough, but their execution, nearly impossible because the executions don't stop. So I have family in Israel, some of whom are in the military, and through their network, they received a voice message from one of the mothers of an IDF soldier on the border with Gaza. And apparently... Right before the terrorist invasion, they had a cyber attack, which they think is from Iran, and realistically, only Iran has that kind of technology, that jammed their communications and made them unable to signal to the military that an attack was happening. And that caused a huge delay in their response. Now, I don't know how accurate that report is. Uh, she sounded very convincing and very credible. Uh, I listened to the message. I understand some Hebrew, but it was translated for me. There's legitimacy to it. And this guy, Stephen Shute, uh, posted on Twitter, this is well known in cybersecurity circles. They talking about Iran have one of the best cybersecurity teams due to being on the first attacked by the Stuxnet, S-T-U-X-N-E-T, virus over a decade ago. Zero Days is a good documentary on the subject. So apparently Iran has these capabilities. But look, the media is now 
downplaying the Iranian involvement. And again, I don't know why the media is taking sides. They've become activists, which is scary because the media should always be seeking truth, uh, not to spread a narrative. But these murderous goons that crossed over, they're not capable of planning something this intricate. The, the rockets, the breaking through the fence, the jamming the communications, the infiltration, the taking of the hostages, all of this stuff was just elaborately planned. The, the skydiving in uh, and this idea that they suddenly got millions in armaments and all of this technical capacity and all this military equipment on their own? Of course not. Iran is the number one global state sponsor of terrorism. And Iran doesn't want to fight. Iran wants others to fight and die for them and for whatever religious reasons. And in this case, it's something very pragmatic. The Saudis are their adversaries in the region. And uh, certainly so is Israel. And now Israel was talking about normalizing trade and relations completely with Saudi Arabia. Iran does not want that. They don't want the region coalescing without them because then they're the outlier. So everything points to heavy Iranian involvement. And uh, other stuff came out afterwards uh, that according to senior members of the Islamic terrorist group Hamas and Islamic party Hezbollah, officers of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps had worked with Hamas since August to devise air, land, and sea invasions. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about the $6 billion that was uh, released for hostages uh, to Iran. Six billion is a lot of money and could be used for a lot of terrorism, for sure. And uh, I don't know that um, I would have made the same decision as the Biden administration did. Uh, but you also have to remember, they're a member of OPEC. They're sitting on tons of oil. And they're making $2 billion a month just on oil. There's not a shortage of capital if they want to wreak havoc all over the world. And also, they're a big supplier of military equipment, especially drones, to Russia for their invasion of Ukraine. Anyway, I don't think anything gets solved without beheading the serpent. And that serpent is Iran. But in some ways, we're at least partially to blame for the emboldening of Iran. First, the weakness of Biden, it's not that Trump was great or any other prior president was great, but just Biden is so weak and so feeble and, and our politics are so disjointed. We're sitting there celebrating trans soldiers instead of celebrating soldiers that show valor and bravery. Forget about even soldiers, just as a society, what we're projecting into the world is weakness and division. And when the world sees that, it's not that they change their objectives, but they get emboldened. They're like, hey, now's the time. If we're going to do this, whatever this horrible thing is, they're going to do it then. So that's the first thing. The second thing we talked about releasing of the $6 billion for hostages, but Iran makes plenty of money, $2 billion a month. But the bigger picture is what Dwight Eisenhower talked about. Of all the things he chose to talk about as an outgoing president, 
In his last speech, he decided to talk about the military-industrial complex. And I'm sure you've heard it by now. If you haven't, look it up. I'm not going to play the clip here. But our military needs to clear inventory. And the only way to clear inventory to get us to buy more so the tanks don't pile up and we have to stack them up like toys in a box is they need war. This is why we were lied into places like Iraq. We spent trillions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives were lost. And what did we end up with? We ended up with nothing. But what we also eliminated was a check on Iranian theocracy, which was Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a monster. He was a monster, but he was also a secular monster. He was not a theocrat. So he was constantly warring with Iran. And guess what happens? We blow up that region, throw the whole thing into disarray, and Iran frees up all those resources that they used to waste on, on fighting uh, Iraq. In fact, they fund all of the terrorist groups inside of Iraq. So Iran has been liberated, both financially and in terms of focus, by some of our actions. And this is a problem we need to fix. And I don't honestly know how to fix it. We actually have two problems to fix. One is Iran. The other is our military industrial complex, because those incentives are not aligned with ours. They're just not. And you can see how those incentives come back to bite us in the ass. And the other thing that is biting us in the ass, Biden, as soon as he got into office, cut oil production. He didn't approve all of these oil pipeline requests that could create energy independence, uh, oil coming in from Canada and other parts of the U.S. That made oil more expensive. And guess what happened next? When Russia invaded Ukraine, oil prices spiked. And what did we do? Biden, not only did he release oil from the petroleum reserve, the National Petroleum Reserve, but he also lifted sanctions on Iran so they can sell us oil to keep prices down. All of this militarism, all of these wars have cascading effects. And before you start blaming Biden, I'm going to ask you to look not in the mirror, but I'm going to ask you to walk to your window, open those blinds, and stare at your SUV or your truck. You know who else is supporting terrorism? People who use three times as much gas to get to the same place as someone who has an efficient sedan. I know a lot of people have American flags emblazoned on their Ford F-150s. Unless you have a job that absolutely requires a truck, you're helping the other side. And here's something I learned because there's a million posts now about the subject. The same way we unleashed Iran, Israel may have unleashed Hamas. This was a, a quote uh, from Haaretz, which is an Israeli newspaper. Quote, 
Anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. Netanyahu told his Likud party's Knesset members in March 2019, quote, this is part of our strategy, bolstering Hamas. So I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, mind blown. I, I understand the politics of the region, but not at this level of detail. So now I needed to research this because it just blew my mind. I found this article from Wall Street Journal written in 2009. Quote, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation, says Mr. Cohen, a Tunisian-born Jew who worked in Gaza for more than two decades, responsible for religious affairs in the region until 1994. Mr. Cohen watched the Islamist movement take shape, muscle aside secular Palestinian rivals, and then morph into what is today Hamas, a militant group that is sworn to Israel's destruction. Instead of trying to curb Gaza's Islamists from the outset, says Mr. Cohen, Israel for years tolerated and in some cases encouraged them as a counterweight to the secular nationalists of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, and its dominant faction, Yasser Arafat's Fatah. Israel cooperated with a crippled half-blind cleric named Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, even as he was laying the foundations for what would become Hamas. Sheikh Yassin continues to inspire militants today. During the recent war in Gaza, Hamas fighters uh, confronted Israeli troops with Yassins, primitive rocket-propelled grenades named in honor of the cleric. A look at Israel's decades-long dealings with Palestinian radicals, including some little-known attempts to cooperate with the Islamists, reveal a catalog of unintended and often perilous consequences. Time and again, Israel's efforts to find a pliant Palestinian partner that is both credible with Palestinians and willing to eschew violence have backfired would-be partners have turned into foes or lost the support of their people. Israel's experience echoes that of the U.S., which during the Cold War looked to Islamists as a useful ally against communism. Anti-Soviet forces backed by America after Moscow's 1979 invasion of Afghanistan later mutated into Al-Qaeda. Now, before you start getting into conspiracies or uh, tribal politics, oh, Biden's bad, or Israel did this, or they did it to themselves, that's a very incorrect or just naive way of framing it. Countries do crazy things, but they're not crazy. They are part of a strategy. And now we can argue whether it's good strategy or bad strategy, but every single country to the extent that it can has to optimize its interests. And in the case of the United States, we do propaganda in foreign countries. The CIA owns a propaganda arm. I talked about it in the one of the Ukraine episodes. Russia was no stranger to that and Soviet Union before them. China fudges their numbers because they have to make things look a certain way. Everyone does something. The problem with this 
particular something is when you play with extremism, you're playing with fire. Once you let it out of the bag, this dogmatism, this cultism, this insanity, you can't contain crazy. No one puts baby in a corner, especially if baby's nuts. We have a history of unleashing this. And when I say we, human beings. So uh, ISIS, for example, was a terrorist group that was an offshoot of the Iraqi military. So instead of taking all those soldiers that have been defeated and conquered and turning them into military police or deploying them in some useful, practical way, we just let them go starve somewhere. And then someone thought to organize them and say, hey, we're going to give you uh, food and purpose. And once you give someone purpose, they're going to sink their teeth into it and never let go. Uh, Lenin's Bolsheviks did the same thing. Uh, in 1917, they were radicalized workers. And at some point were the ones who facilitated the October Revolution. Hitler's brown shirts. He got people worked up into lather. These guys were his gang. They were his Antifa or Proud Boys or whatever, roaming the streets, beating up people who didn't support him. People get their purpose mixed up with politics. And uh, Erdogan, I, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, the, uh, the president who <laughs> made himself president for life in Turkey, is doing the same thing. He paid off the clerics there. So now he's manipulating the religious people to his side and trying to turn the country more religious. And he's also allowing all of these religious refugees from Syria and maybe some other places into the country. And they're far more religious than the domestic population, which is pretty secular. And that's turning the country religious and giving him more support because he's got the clerics in his pocket. He is playing with fire. And depending on how long he lives, it may not work out in his favor. He, even here on a milder level, Obama mobilized all of these young people to get him elected. They were all excited, hope and change, every campus. And then the second he got elected, disbanded them immediately. When there are quotes about this, I think there was a, I think it was New Yorker or New York Magazine expose talking about this. It might've been Vanity Fair. Um, Obama's Army, I think that might've been the name of the article. And the premise was that he had all of these young, smart people mobilized and then immediately disbanded them because he was afraid of the radicalism they might represent in the future. Bernie capitalized on the same thing. He tapped into that revolutionary vibe. And then that revolutionary vibe started to morph and, uh, and became Antifa. And then there were counter movements and there were Proud Boys and then BLM and all this intersectional stuff. This is people seeking purpose. And to the extent people in power are trying to manipulate it to their ends, they will get burned. And not only will they get burned, the country might get burned, literally burned, because you can't encourage this kind of radicalism. I understand that there are people who are seeking answers, but the ones they're finding are dumb. They're dumb. Intersectionality is dumb. White supremacy is dumb. Antifa, whatever, I know they call themselves anti-fascists. They're as fascist as can be. They're dumb. These are dumb ideologies. As dumb as whatever Hamas is and whatever the morons who are supporting them are doing. So let's try to give 
people real purpose. Oh, I know it's hard. And I know these dumb politicians have no idea how to do that. But the end result is these people are never letting go. Beliefs are more powerful than countries. And every leader knows that. Communist leaders, every autocrat knows that. That's why they either try to get the clerics on their side or they try to shut down religion completely. Soviet Union shut down religion completely. I was born there. I know. They, you, no one was allowed to be anything. Christian, Jewish, well, it's definitely not Jewish. But the idea was that you have this otherworldly thing that is competing with state power. And when state power tries to usurp that thing to its own ends, it only goes to bad places. Only bad places. And that's what we have fighting for the Holy Land. What happened in Israel on uh, October 7th is going to permanently change the trajectory of the region. And that was essentially the goal. So in that way, Hamas achieved it because it drove a wedge between Israel and Palestine and potential peace and uh, negotiations with all of these other Arab countries. And now Israel has no choice but to make security their number one priority. In the wake of this, especially people on the outside, typically Americans are much more gung-ho about wiping everyone out than the people who actually live there. But I saw a tweet that said, and this is from a nobody account, but uh, uh, he, he, I'm assuming it's a he, wrote, after a certain point, it becomes the humane choice after all these years, calling for peace starts to feel like pulling two fighting dogs apart and letting them catch their breath before turning them loose to tear at each other again, over and over. And he continues, fundamentally, it's two choices, the same old crap that hasn't worked for the better part of a century or something new. If one of these Israel-hating countries was willing to take Palestinian refugees, this could be over quickly and humanely. In doing what they did, Hamas essentially asked Israel, begged Israel for a massive retaliation against supposedly their own people, but I don't think they care about them. And also, they were asking for the usual. And the usual is what every single conquering nation does, which is put down their enemies, especially ones that can slide into your country at any moment and slit the throats of a thousand of your citizens or more, whatever the, the fi final number is. Anyway, so I, I think there's three choices. Um, one is containment without incursion. Two is occupation. Three is threat eradication. Number one, which is containment without incursion, is really impossible now because uh, this first phase is going to be just getting hostages out. Number two, which is occupation, is going to cause more festering deaths on both sides and global hate despite the fact that Israel is going to try to be humane, try to follow all the international laws, but it, it won't matter because the way Hamas fights, they fight dirty and, and there's going to be collateral damage. And number three is ripping the bandage off, ending this problem, but also becoming an international pariah in doing so. For how long? 
it's hard to say, um, but it's hard not to be the bad guy if you're putting down your enemy for good. Israel serves a very uncomfortable role as conqueror of, of this territory because the faith and the culture is pacifist by nature. It doesn't even recruit. It's not looking to conquer anything, whether it's minds or bodies. And this idea of, of monitoring this region has been extremely difficult to wrestle. That's why even within Israeli politics, there's so much fighting between the left wing and right wing. Uh, there are a lot of people who are peaceniks and don't want to see fighting, but how do you effectively be a peacenik when your roommate is Jeffrey Dahmer? And that's exactly the situation they find themselves in. And um, Israel is a very small place. Everyone knew somebody with one degree of separation who got killed or raped or kidnapped. I don't know that the response can be that extreme, given the culture and given international connectivity. These countries are all interconnected. Israel is not self-sustaining. Uh, they need to trade with other countries. And that's going to be very hard if you annihilate your enemy and wipe them off the earth. I don't think that's going to happen. Now, Lindsey Graham has other ideas. He said American Israel should respond to Hamas's taking of hostages by blowing up Iranian oil refineries. On one hand, yeah, let's blow everybody up who's doing this stuff. Uh, on the other hand, I'm like, isn't the LGBTQ community supposed to be peaceful? How did Lindsey Graham end up so warmongery? Anyway, there's no proof that uh, Lindsey is anything but uh, a man's man. Honestly, I don't know how this gets resolved, but I don't think it can resolve, resolve itself, nor do I think it can get resolved without taking care of the Iran problem, which we partially created. Um, the other thing that I think Israel needs to do, regardless of what happens, is they need to arm their citizens. This is a country where every single person virtually has served in the military, except for the, the super religious Jews and maybe the, some of the old people. But they're all trained, and anyone who wants a gun should be able to get a gun just so they can protect themselves in situations exactly like this. And also, I think it should be mandatory for anyone within, you know, let's say five to seven years out of military service, they should be required to have a gun so they can protect their neighborhoods, their families, and so on. Um, of course, they should do background checks and mental health checks and all that. Whatever your position on gun rights is, if you live this close to someone who is sworn to kill you, I don't think there's another choice. And uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about, maybe second last, is the power of Twitter. During this attack, it was the only place to get unfettered coverage of what was going on. All of the other social media platforms are running like hell from news, controversy, anything that could be perceived as negative. And, you know, I, I don't blame them because they got burned with, uh, I don't know, the Trump election and Russia interference and like all kinds of other uh, misinformation and all the other uh, politicized stuff. But also it's not what advertisers want. They don't want their ads, probably not, not even next to this video. So they, they play it down. They, they squelch it. And, um, 
Constantine Kissin, who's a, a comedian commentator, uh, he tweeted, the mainstream media elite is no longer the dominant force on Twitter. Their blue ticks don't give them extra gravitas. This means that the way we receive and perceive information is much more meritocratic than before. The mainstream cannot dominate the narrative on here, and the result is they also cannot dominate the narrative on their own platforms because it's so at odds with what we all see here. I know it's subtle, but it changes everything. I agree with them 100%. Uh, then uh, another woman, Pamela Paresky, uh, she wrote that search quote, CNN Palestinian terrorists, and you get nothing about anti-Israeli terrorism, uh, but lots of condemnation of Israel. You have to search, quote, CNN Palestinian militants in order to get news about anti-Jewish, anti-Israeli uh, terrorism. And these are the kinds of word games that leftists play. Uh, they are trying to shape narratives because remember, these are all the same influence and power-seeking people that just graduated from these schools. I think this fragmentation of media in some ways is good, but it's also scary because we could very well end up in a much more radical place. When you let people go off into their own little corners of the internet, that could very well happen. Uh, another guy, David Rosenko, uh, he wrote, just canceled my New York Times subscription. Shockingly biased coverage on the front page right now. All photos of damage or injury are Palestinian, and photos representing Israel are of tanks, the Iron Dome, and people hiding safely. Zero mention of the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Israeli civilians, and the gleeful filming as their bodies are paraded around the streets. And to add insult to injury, they have the gall of featuring a graph of the relative deaths from the last 15 years, implying that either the attack was justified or minimizing the current deaths. Disgusting. Not everyone is happy with this uh, state of affairs. They want to go back to corporate media dominating narratives. Uh, this uh, woman, I think she's a reporter, Sarah Quinlan, she wrote, Twitter used to be the best place to follow breaking news, but Elon Musk has completely ruined the site. I can't even search for updates from verified accounts because the results are full of randos who paid for a check. She wants to go back to the world where check marks are issued by an issuing authority, a gatekeeper who says, you are a journalist, you are not. This is what gets into the algorithm. This is what doesn't. That world served us well for a while until it got exposed. And this building of narratives is so pervasive. It's just, it's been exposed over and over in COVID and, you know, Trumpism and Russia Gate and all this other stuff. And that's where we are. And we just haven't built that next version of what media is supposed to be. Whatever it is, this, this ain't it either. Uh, there's also a lot of conspiracies out there that the Jews wanted this or Netanyahu wanted this. No Jew's going to put other Jews in harm's way. That's, that's out of the question. There's also uh, a couple of stories about uh, warnings from Egypt that something big is going to happen. It's, it reminded me of 9-11 uh, when uh, there were other reports from other countries, something big. But it, if it's not specific in terms of 
location, time, and method, then it's very hard to to act on those things. But yeah, maybe precaution should have been taken. And most likely in these cases, it's incompetence. That's always the case, you know, or, or indifference or or whatever, not indifference in terms of lives, but just, you know, you know how people, people are bad at their jobs. Most people are bad at their jobs. Go to, you know, go to a restaurant, uh, go to anywhere else and see how pervasive mediocrity is or worse. So uh, more likely it's that. Um, there's also the Iran thing, which I, I talked about. But Putin, you know, some people are speculating that he's involved. He wants to divert our resources and attention to uh, a Middle East conflict and to giving weapons uh, to Israel and creating that situation as opposed to uh, supporting Ukraine. I, that may be true. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to wait and see. Strange times. And a lot of times I feel like there's a new generation that has to relearn all of the lessons of the past that were forgotten. And there's no way to opt out of their growing pains. And so this is all on repeat. You go to sitcoms from the 70s. If they have like a news segment, it'll say trouble in the Middle East or hijacking or whatever it is. Nothing changes. The players change, maybe the tools that we use change. But once something is rooted deeply in belief, it's very hard to change it. And that's where we are. My heart goes out to all the innocent people suffering on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. Hope there's a solution. I'm Steve Factor. See you next time on The McFuture.